Welcome to Grace Community Church On Demand, the weekly podcast from the Sunday services at Grace Community Church in Rupert, Idaho. Here at Grace, we believe in building the kingdom of God one person at a time. We're passionate about loving God, loving people, and following Jesus. Let's get into this week's message with Pastor Travis Turner. Daniel, and I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed it. I, um, I I feel like Pastor T is on his game best when he's doing some expository teaching through a book of the Bible. Um, James was really great. Daniel, I think, has been really good, and so I'm pretty excited to be able to continue this. Um, and so uh, this morning, I'm not um, I'm not real big into this idea of naming. Sermons. I'm perfectly fine with people that do, but it's never been a big thing for me. Uh, but, but this morning, we're going to talk about outrageous faith and trusting God in the midst of a disaster. Not that we know anything about that. Not that the last couple of years hasn't been something like watching a train wreck in slow motion. Um, and not that 2022 hasn't gotten off to a rocky start. Um, but can I just say for a minute, of all the ugly things that have happened in 2022, and not to diminish any of them at all, but upper crust, really? <laughs> so, you know, and some of you know, you know, Wes and I are kind of, by Idaho standards, sort of kind of almost cousins. And, and so I called him up. You know, his wife is married to one of my wife's cousins, and so, you know, that's almost related. And, and so I called him up when I saw the news on Facebook. I'm like, man, and he told me the story and what's going on. I'm like, well, you know, the old Duck Uglies building is still available. He's like, yeah, but that's ugly. So we'll see what happens. But be praying for Wes and Jess as they're trying to figure out what to do. But back to more serious things. Um, we're still going to be in the book of Daniel. And uh, we're, um, we're talking about trusting God in the midst of a disaster. And I want to start out with what I think is the most outrageous statement of faith in the Bible. And this is from the book of Job. Yes, we're talking about Daniel. But we're going to start out in Job. Some, you know, you, most of you are familiar with the book of Job. Um, some people think it's probably the oldest book in the Bible. Um, not that it happened before creation, obviously, but it was written down before the story happened, before Moses was alive. He's probably a contemporary of Abraham, we think. Um, and he was this guy that was highly thought of and respected by God. And, and some people have said, you know, beware if you be highly thought of and respected by God. And so, so the story opens with, with, with Job and the amazing guy that he is, and then suddenly you have, you have Satan enters the picture and, and says that he comes before, before, before God in heaven as the angels are being, you know, paraded out for inspection or whatever. And, um, and, and, and God is like, hey, Satan, what you been doing? Oh, you know, just running around looking for trouble. He's like, well, did you happen to notice my boy Job? You won't find anybody like him anywhere. And Satan's like, well, duh. I mean, you take care of him. You protect him. Look at all the stuff you've given him. Of course he thinks well of you and loves you and all that kind of stuff. You let me at him, and I'll have him cursing to you to, his, to your face. And so based on this dare, God says, give it your best shot. And thus the tragedy in Job's life ensues. He loses all of his wealth, his possessions. He loses all of his kids. And we come to this point in chapter 2 where his wife is telling him, surely this is nonsense. You just need to curse God and die. Because there, there was this belief at the time that if you, if you said something horrific enough against God that you would just die. So just curse God and die. And Job makes this statement in reply to his wife. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? See, Job says this to rebuke his wife, but, but we got to keep in mind, Job lost all of his possessions, and so did his wife. Job lost all of his kids, but so did his wife. And, and, and she really wasn't even part of this. She was just kind of, you know, going along for the ride, and so she's in desperate straits, just like he is. Uh, and, and when you look at the discourse in the book of Job, you know, his three friends show up, 
and they look pretty smart the first week while they sit around and say nothing, and then they start talking, and you wonder where these guys came from. Um, and a lot of the discourse centers on them trying to convince Job that he must have done something because bad things like this don't happen to good people. And Job's like, I got nothing. I mean, as far as I know, I am upright before God. Um, and, and we struggle with that same idea, right? Something bad's going on in our life, and they're like, Ferris, come on. Pony up. What'd you do? It's like, I don't know. You know? And, and so we struggle with that today, right? I think this, this becomes an extremely important question, especially in today, today, for us to wrestle with. Is, is how do we trust God when everything's falling apart around us in the midst of everything? Um, how do we do that? And so last week, um, so, so we're going we're gonna to be in Daniel chapter 6 this morning, Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, some people say Daniel and his pet kitties. Um, and we're really just picking up right where Pastor T left off last week. Um, just, to, just to catch you up, last week um, he was talking about uh, King Belshazzar, who was uh, probably Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, maybe great-grandson. The history's a little fuzzy. And he's having this big party, this big banquet, and he decides to bring in the, the, the sacred items from the temple, the golden um, uh, cups and saucers and dishes, and serve his party guests off this stuff. And that didn't please God none too much. And so this hand appears, and we get the handwriting on the wall. This is where this popular statement comes from. And, um, and he's calling all of his magic men, his satraps and soothsayers and whatnot, and they got nothing. And so, but his grandmother, the queen mother, says, but there's a guy. And so they call up Daniel, and Daniel looks at it and says, oh, this is what it means. Um, you have upset God one too many times, and tonight is, you're done. And sure enough, that night, King Darius of the Medes and Persians, which if you look on your map, the Medes and Persians would be modern-day Iran, um, marched in, killed Belshazzar, and the Babylonian Empire was swept away, and the Medo-Persian Empire moved in. And thus we begin with chapter 6. Um, we won't read the whole chapter, we'll just kind of hit some high points, but beginning in verse 1, it pleased Darius, the new king, to appoint 120 satraps to rule over the kingdom. So these would be like your regional governors, your royal advisors, um, the guys that are going to do the actual running of the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. So you guys remember from when Pastor started all this that Daniel was part of this group of, of, of Jewish men that were brought to Babylon in the exile and, and, um, and the, the king looked at all of them and chose the best, the brightest, the best looking to give them, uh, uh, to, to coach them up and give them special authority to do things in the land. And so, you know, some of us today would have been in great danger of being sucked up in that. You know, Big John and I would have been just fine. And we're not going to get picked for that, and we're okay with that. Um, and so now fast forward like 60 years. So Daniel is in his 80s at this point. And, and in, in the course of this 60 years, he has conducted himself so well uh, verse 3, now Daniel had so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Darius was planning on making Daniel his number two guy. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. You jump down to verse 5. Finally, they, they looked and looked and they couldn't find anything. We will never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. See, Daniel was a key administrator and performed his duties so well and his character was so beyond reproach that his enemies could find no dirt to pull up on him. In 60 years of government service, I don't think that exists in, anymore. 
I don't think there's anyone in this room that we could go back five years and not find dirt on, and myself included. So, so this is, you know, we're talking about an exceptional guy here. Um, that in the course of all this, and it's not like, it's not like, you know, he's running his hometown. You know, he was an exile pulled into a hostile foreign country working for a hostile foreign government. And this is the situation. So they did what every bad guy with the twisty, pointy mustache does. They hatched a plot. And they hatched a plot that not only um, would play on the, the, the vanity of the king, but also would trap the king based on the laws of the land. So back down in verse 9, or verse 6 of chapter 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed. All? I don't think all. They have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, should be thrown in the lion's den. Now your majesty issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So this is a, a, a central part of the story here. Um, the interesting thing about the legal structure of the Medo-Persian Empire is once a law was put down, it could not be changed, it could not be repealed. And we see this later on in the book of Esther, right? Because this is the same, the same kingdom, it's just different kings down the road, and, and King Xerxes was, was, was sort of hoodwinked by Haman into passing this, making this royal edict that on this certain day that was chosen by Lot, that, 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 that all the Medo-Persians could come and attack the, Israel, the Jews and take all their stuff and there was nothing they could do about it. And all of a sudden, Mordecai and Esther were able to get in and talk to them. And Esther's like, you do realize that when this law goes into effect that I'm part of that. And of course, he had no idea. He just knew that she was this babe that they had brought to him, but she was smarter than everyone else, and so he chose her as queen, and all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, you're Jewish, I had no idea, which you know, wasn't necessarily a good thing in his eyes, but yet he loved her enough that he's like, well, this is dumb. So Mordecai comes in and says, well, why don't we do this? Because he's like, I can't change this. This is the way it is. So Mordecai says, let's do this. So on that day, you can go do that, but the Jews can fight back and defend themselves with deadly force. And nothing happened. And as a result, now we have the Jewish festival of Purim, which celebrates this event. So he makes this law. The law cannot be repealed because it's part of how the Medo-Persian Empire works. But the question for us today is, how would we react to something like this? If there would be some cockamamie law that comes down that affects all of us, oh, wait. You know, how do we respond to stuff like this today? I mean, this has been happening on what, a weekly basis the last couple of years? Sometimes twice a week? Well, there's several different ways that we have responded, I would propose. One is denial. It's not just a river in Egypt. Lots of people are swimming up to their necks in it. Things can't really be that bad. I mean, God would never allow something horrible like this to happen, right? Um, that, that COVID thing, it's just a government hoax. It's not real. They're just trying to control our minds. Um, it's just a ploy. No, this isn't real. It's not blah, blah, blah. Denial comes in many forms. A lot of times denial comes in spiritual forms. So I remember years ago when I was doctoring in Michigan, I had this guy I was taking care of, and I'm talking to him in the hospital. He's literally having a heart attack in front of me. And I'm telling him, we need to get you into the cath lab so we can take care of this. And he's like, no, I don't need to do anything. God's going to take care of me. God's going to heal me. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, come to find out he was part of this underground healing movement in this town. And he was convinced because he had seen God heal all these other people miraculously that surely he was going to do this. And we're talking and he tells me this story about this guy that had come to town to preach and 
and his clothes had been destroyed and, you know, unbeknownst, not knowing all this, this guy had gone to the store and had bought this suit of clothes and it just so happened that they fit this guy perfectly. And I'm like, so how do you know that God didn't put you in front of me right now to be the person to take care of this, just like you bought that suit of clothes for that guy that you didn't even know? Oh, no, that's not, no, that's not how God works. You just told me that's how he works. So it wasn't that this guy was believing in God for a miracle. He just didn't want to admit that he was having a heart attack and might die. How often do we do that? We come up with this sort of, you know, God's going to ride in on a white horse and do this, that, and the other, when in reality, we just need to realize the situation that we're in and see the solution God's placed in front of us. You know, there's, the, um, there's also the story, the old preacher story about the guy in the flood, and he's standing up on top of his roof because the flood waters are rising. The guy drives by in a truck. Hey, jump in. We're going to save you. No, nope, God's got it. He's going to take care of me. I don't need to worry about it. Flood water's rising, a boat drives by. Jump in quick, flood's coming. Nope, God's going to take care of me, I'm okay. Flood water's rising up more, another boat comes through. Jump in, this is the last boat, flood's coming. Nope, God's going to take care of me. Finally, he's standing on the very peak of his roof, water's up around his ankles, a helicopter comes by. Jump in quick, flood's coming. God's going to take care of me. He drowns. Standing in front of heaven, standing in heaven, goes to God, God, why didn't you take care of me? He's like, I sent you a truck, two boats, and a helicopter. What did you want? <laughs> and how many times are we in a situation where God presents us with a solution? No, that's not what I want. What do you want? Because here's the thing. We get caught up in this notion of if it's not some super miraculous thing I can brag about at church, I'm okay without it. Are we really looking for God's hand or are we looking for something we can brag about at church? First service didn't get that. Yes, I read Pastor's Cliff Notes. I'm supposed to say that so many times. But it's true. I mean, God puts a solution right in front of us, but it doesn't look like what we expect. And so we don't take it. Explain the situation away. Oh, my goodness. Enter the conspiracy theorists. Of course, the problem is the last couple of years, they've sounded less and less crazy. <laughs> is it just me or, you know? But, yeah, you know, I mean, how many times have we heard, oh, my goodness, you know, this COVID thing is just government mind control. Um, it was, you know, maybe intentionally done. Well, gosh, you know, that might be, who knows. Um, all this different stuff. And we see this in other ways, you know. Um, So-and-so is, is, is homesick because you got a cold. It's a demon. It's a demon, I tell you. <laughs> maybe they just have a cold. You know, and again, it's this whole, you know, we don't tolerate ordinary things because if it's, you know, everything's got to be this super spiritual conspiracy, good and evil. You know, we've read one too many Frank Preddy novels. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm not saying that there's not good and evil in the world. And I'm not saying that there's not spiritual warfare. I mean, you read further in the book of Daniel and Daniel prays for 90 days. And at the end of 90 days, who shows up? Michael the archangel. And, he's, and, and, and Daniel's like, well, that took long enough. He's like, well, I came the moment you started praying, but I've been spending the last 90 days fighting with the, with the, 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 the prince of Persia. So, yes, things like this happen, and the Bible talks about these things. But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't talk about these things as being ordinary happening all the time. How many times do you see Moses praying and the angel shows up and says, I had to vanquish a demon on my way. You know, we, we have to be okay with the fact that there are things that are ordinary that happen all the time. And extraordinary things don't happen all the time, which is why they're extraordinary. If it happened all the time, it wouldn't be extraordinary. And then finally... The last thing that we do is we seek to inject ourselves into the situation and try and change it. Now, I want to be cautious here for a second because there are certainly times where God calls us 
to inject ourselves into situations to try and change things. We just celebrated Martin Luther King's birthday. You know, I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's mind that God put his hand on MLK, flawed man that he was, to work a mighty work in history. But God doesn't always do that. Sometimes he calls us to change situations and sometimes he puts us into situations to change us. Thank you. And, and so we have to be following hard after God to know the difference. But how do, we, how do we seek to change situations? We take political action. I am 100% convinced that Christians need to be more active in politics. Half the reason we're in the mess that we're in is because Christians backed away from politics about 40 years ago. We need to be involved in appropriate assemblies and protests. We don't want to be throwing bricks through people's windows and stuff. But we need to be involved. We need to be willing to stand up when something's not right and say something about it. But another way that we, get, that we inject ourselves into situations to try and change it is prayer. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about this because have you ever considered that there might be inappropriate thoughts and attitudes about prayer and wrong motivations for prayer? So I put this on Facebook a little bit ago and it was met with uproarious laughter and applause. Having a teenager is like having a cat that only comes out to be fed and hisses when you try to pet it. I have two. I can speak to this. One is fed more than the other and one hisses more than the other. But my question is, how often are we like that to God? You know, how often do we think of prayer Mainly when things go bad. So there's the old story of the pastor and the deacon sitting around talking about this bad situation in church. And the pastor says, I think it's come to a point where we need to pray. And the deacon's like, oh my, is it that bad? <laughs> you know, the building's falling down around us. Everything's going bad. Now it's time to pray. Or even worse, we pray all the time. But we view prayer as this tool for getting things that we want. Prayer becomes crawling up into Santa God's lap and asking him for what we want. Well, it's kind of harsh. That's not real. We don't do that. How many people have heard someone talk about their prayer journal? Really? Nobody? So, so this is a thing that, you know, is a thing. People keep these prayer journals. Every prayer journal I've ever heard anyone talked about is like this. In this column, you've got all the things that you're praying for. In this column, you've got the dates and times of when your prayer was answered. Oh, but we don't view prayer as just a way of getting what we want from God. Hmm. But look at it on the flip side. We pray for something and it doesn't happen. And we're mad. We sulk. We say, oh, I guess we didn't gather enough people to pray. We didn't use the right turn of phrase. We didn't pray in Jesus' name. We didn't do this. We didn't do that. And so we talk ourselves into this corner. He's standing up there with his hand on the switch waiting. But Sarah didn't pray. <clears throat> Sorry. Is a God that's standing up there not acting until somebody prays a God worth worshiping? Either God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, or he's not. And if he only does something because Dusty Adams asked him to do it, then who's in charge? And we, 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 we've convinced ourselves of this. This is kind of many people's popular notion of, pray, of prayer, that we have to come together and all pray because the Bible says, where two or more are gathered, I'm there. And if two or more of you agree in, on earth, it'll be done in heaven. So does that mean that, you know, me and T-Bark and Brandon can get together and ask for a Ferrari and God has to do it? That's how we talk about it. No, you wouldn't want to pay the insurance on it. <laughs> the oil changes are murder. You know, that's how we talk about prayer sometimes. That if enough of us get together and ask, then it'll happen. But what the Bible actually says is anything that you ask in my name, 
which means in accordance with my will, not because we tacked on this little phrase at the end of our prayer, but in accordance with my will, then it'll happen. Well, what was Daniel's attitude and habit of prayer? So chapter 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Notice what didn't happen. He didn't call up Rack Shack and Benny and say, oh my goodness, guys, you won't believe what happened. We got to get together and pray. He didn't say, gather up the exiles. We have to protest and march and blah, blah, blah. His prayer life didn't change at all, nor did the content of his prayers. You see, because the point of our prayer life is not to crawl up in Santa God's lap and ask him for stuff. The point of our prayer life is to connect us to God. I mean, and you think about it, you know, if you talk to parents about what annoys them about their teenagers is the fact that they only come talk to us when they're in trouble or they need something. Why would God be any more excited about that than we are? Thanks, Elvis. The reality is we, we have this notion that prayer is asking God for stuff and we don't bother to think about the fact that prayer is actually us having a conversation with God. It's us communing with God. It, it's, you know, it's, not the, it's not the basis of our relationship with God, but it's the substance of our relationship with God. We talk to God, and he talks to us, and we call this thing prayer. See, and notice also that his primary prayer was one of thanksgiving. He just found out that his fellow members of government had hatched a plan not just to depose him, not just to have him kicked out of office, but to have him killed in a fairly unpleasant manner. And he goes to God and prays prayers of thanksgiving. If that does not blow us away, I don't know if we're paying much attention. You know, it's the thing about these familiar stories in the Bible is we tend to lose the details. Daniel was in essence living out Job's statement to his wife. He was living out this notion of shall we accept good from God and not also hardship, not also bad stuff. Some older translations, shall we not accept good from God and also evil. So why was Daniel able to do this? Why was Daniel able to do this and how are we able to do this today? How, do we, how are we able to get this outrageous faith and put it into action? Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, the first thing that we have to do to have this outrageous faith is we have to know who God is. Spoiler alert, he's not us. Think about that for a minute. We have to know who God is. God is the sovereign ruler, Lord of the universe, the creator of all, and we are not him. If, you, if you've been paying attention to Wednesday nights the last year or so, you've heard me preach about this a lot, Jehovah Jireh. Traditionally, we've, this is the name that, 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 Mo, that, that Abraham gave to God on Mount Moriah. God told him to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him on the altar, his son that was the basis of the covenant, his son that he miraculously gave him. And Abraham said, okay. And so they gathered up their nine companions and they set off on the quest of Moriah. No, wait, wrong story. Um, he gathered his son and firewood and a donkey and a couple of servants and they went to Mount Moriah. And they're traveling, and his son is noticing what's going on and being a smart kid. He's like, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, we've got all this, but where's the animal for sacrifice? And Abraham's like, ah, eh, God will take care of it. Don't worry about it. And they get there, and long story short, the altar's built, he's laid out. Abraham's poised with his knife, ready to plunge it into his son, and an angel appears and says, stop. And then there's a ram caught in a bush. And so they sacrificed the ram and Abraham on Mount Moriah, which would eventually become Temple Mount, tells, gives God the name Jehovah Jireh. 
And we interpret that typically today, the God who provides. But when you look at it, when you break the name down, Jehovah, that's the holy name of God. That's God's George. When, God, when Moses is standing before God at the burning bush, he asks him, what is your name? Because he just come out of Egypt. He knew like, like 18 dozen gods. Which one are you? And God tells him his name. And the word was considered so holy that Jews never uttered it. So we don't know what it really is, how it's really pronounced. The best of guess for us is Jehovah or Yahweh. And then the second part of the word, Jireh, comes from the Hebrew root, Ra'ah. The first time we see this word in the Bible is in the creation story. God created stuff and he saw that it was good. So the word Jehovah Jireh literally means the God who sees and provides. So part of knowing who God is is knowing who God is. He's the God who sees and provides. So nothing that happens in our lives happens by accident or without God knowing. God's not sitting around wondering about the outcome of events. He wasn't standing up above the, the valley of Hebron with Goliath out there taunting the Israelites going, I hope this David kid comes through, my goodness. <laughs> You know, the, the, second, the, the, the last episode of the second season of The Chosen, how many people have been watching The Chosen? If you haven't been, you should be. Last episode of the second season of The Chosen, the 12 disciples are complete. The last disciple introduced in that episode was Judas Iscariot. And thus began all the talk on social media. How are they going to play out the life of this arch criminal? And it's this whole notion that somehow Judas is this bad character in the story. It's like, wait a minute. Are you suggesting that the crucifixion of Christ was a great evil that was perpetrated that took God by surprise? Yes, Judas was used by God to do a horrible thing, but it was necessary. And when God, when Jesus stood before the disciples and told them, you will sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Who was among them at that moment? It's been said that when we get to heaven, there's going to be three surprises. We're going to be surprised who we see. We're going to be surprised who we don't see. And a whole lot of people are going to be surprised to see us. <laughs> I think we're going to be surprised to see Judas Iscariot walk in the streets of gold. Because Jesus said so. He wasn't some evil guy that snuck in under the tent. He was meant to be part of the 12. It didn't happen by accident. And it's not like he just kind of went bad. God is either all-knowing and all-powerful or he's not. And then in Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 7, this is one of my life verses have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives tales rather train yourself to be godly this word train uh, comes from the greek word gymnasio that's where we get our word gymnasium the first part of the word gymno means na naked and the second part refers to exercise so the word literally the word that paul uses for train literally means run naked. Now I have to clarify, the word naked means to be without clothing. Contrast that with the word naked, which means to be without clothing and up to something. Yes, that's funny. This is Southern vernacular, sorry, I didn't clarify that. So why in the world would Paul tell Timothy to run around naked? To be godly. What he's talking about, what this word refers to is athletic training such as would be capable of participating in the Olympics. Because how were the ancient Olympics competed? In the nude. This is why they don't do it that way today. <laughs> so he's saying, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives tales. In other words, don't pay too much attention to social media. Don't trust what your friends say over what the Bible says. Oh, yeah. oh. Mm. But rather, train yourself to be godly. Put as much effort into developing godliness in your life as you would if you were an Olympic athlete training for your event. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. Because you think about these Olympic athletes, 
It's this tiny percentage of them that walk away with any medal at all. Most of these guys spend their entire lives up to that point training for an event that in most cases is going to last less than 10 minutes and they're going to go home with nothing but pictures and memories. And yet, they throw their entire being into this. And Paul's saying that's how we should view godliness. But then he goes further in his second letter to Timothy. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. How many people recognize this verse? How many people are involved in Awana? Yeah, this is the Awana verse, right? Older translations say, study to study, um, study, study to show yourself approved. But the Awana verse, Awana means a worker, approved workers are not ashamed. And it's this idea of studying to be an approved worker who does not need to be ashamed. Why? Because you're correctly handling the word of truth. The way we know who God is, is by studying the word. Because at the end of the day, what we need to know is who God is, not who we think he is, not who we'd like him to be, not who our friends on social media think he is. Don't even get me started about all the chicken soup nonsense. I mean... We must be spending time in our Bibles, not just reading, but studying and learning and making it a part of us. And while reading Christian books and listening to Christian music and godly preachers are fine, it's not a substitute for studying the word. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And you say, well, gosh, I mean, this business of studying the Bible is easy for you, Dr. Dave. I mean, you spent like 60 years in school. It's actually not far off. Well, this is like the best time in history to study the Bible. Because we have groups like Bible Study Fellowship that my wife and I are part of. I'm, I'm in a, a, a Bible, the, 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 we're studying Matthew this year, and I'm in a Bible study that meets at 9 o'clock on Monday mornings. Wait a minute, aren't you at work at 9 o'clock on Monday mornings? Oh, yeah, my group is in Singapore, and I log into the Zoom meeting at 6 o'clock on Sunday nights. So you can be in a Bible study that meets anywhere in the world and go through a Bible study with a group of people, learn how to study the Bible there's this organization called Precept Ministries, which we've been involved in in the past. And what's unique about this ministry is they teach you how to read the Bible, how to dissect it, take it apart, and know exactly what Paul was talking about when he said those weird things to the Corinthians. It's a very good organization. Uh, there's books on how to study the Bible. This is one of my favorites, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fee and Stewart. And then you've got Bible apps. You've got Bible websites. You know, in the past... Pastors would spend literally thousands of dollars on these big software packages, and nowadays it's almost all available online for free. There is literally very little excuse for not being actively studying your Bible and studying it deeply. And if you need help, talk to me, talk to pastor, talk to my wife. We can hook you up and plug you in. But see, when we understand that God is God and we are not suddenly we realize that not only are we powerless to change our circumstances, but we understand that we don't need to. Because if God's not going to change our circumstances, it means he's probably trying to change us. And even if we don't understand our circumstances, if we know God, then we can trust the one who understands our circumstances and trust his goodness to see us through to whatever end. Not only do we need to know who God is, we need to know what God wants. Say, well, gosh, that's a tall order. I mean, that could be a whole series of sermons in itself. I could write a book and probably retire tomorrow. What does God want? Well, interestingly enough, it's not that difficult a question. Throughout Scripture, the one thing that's repeated more and more and more about what God wants is his glory, to be glorified. Or as a really smart guy said on Facebook not long ago, 
Jesus doesn't exist to make you happy. You exist to give him glory. Right, Tyson? And how many times do we get that backwards? Because our prayer list is not so much righting wrongs and fixing injustices and saving the world, but, oh, my goodness, this is uncomfortable and unpleasant in my life. Jesus, take it away. And Jesus is like, this is the thing that's going to make you more palatable and a better servant of me. You don't want it to go away. You want to embrace it. See, this seems strange to us, this notion of God being concerned about or even obsessed with his glory. It seems kind of narcissistic and egotistical, and for us it would be. I mean, if Joe Cook is running around, you should glorify me, not only will we snicker behind our hands, but it would be really stupid. But yet God is alone God. He's the creator of the universe. He alone is worthy of all glory and honor. And so when we talk about God being a jealous God, it's because he really does deserve all that. And when we give it to someone else, we really are robbing God of what he deserves. But then lastly, we have to know who God is. We have to know what God wants, but we must be willing to see it done. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our minds? We soak it in Scripture. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, when we, when we spend time in Scripture, when we allow it to become part of us, when we, soak our, when, we, when we soak our brain in Scripture like a tea bag in water, all of a sudden we look at the world differently, and life happens differently. And then we're able to join God in these things and be part of what God's doing. So when Daniel heard about the decree, he prayed. He simply prayed as he had always prayed. And when they came for him, he just went. He didn't fight. He didn't kick. He didn't fuss. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. So the king recognized this was a bad thing, and he had actually spent the entire night before this trying to save Daniel, trying to figure out some loophole in Medo-Persian law that would allow him to save him. And he realized he was stuck. And he realized the only thing that could save Daniel was his God. So here's this pagan king saying, God, Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, save you. See, Daniel knew who God was, and he knew what God wanted. He knew that God's primary concern was not Daniel's health, it wasn't Daniel's wealth, it wasn't even Daniel's comfort, but his glory. So Daniel's like, I'll walk whatever road I need to walk to bring God glory. As a result, he was able to trust God with what appeared to be a disaster. Now remember the three guys before, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how their situation went? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Did you notice what they said? They said, our God is able... Whether he does or not is his business. And we so often conflate what God is able to do with what we're sure he will do. Let me say that again. We conflate or confuse what God is able to do with what we think he will do. And what we think he will do usually is what we think would be best for us. But what does Paul say at the end of 1 Corinthians 13? that now we see through a glass darkly. The metaphor he's using is, is like a, a polished bronze mirror like he would have used in that day. But then we will know as we are fully known. We'll see things clearly. You know, our, our, our vision of what's best in our lives from God's perspective is like next to nothing. 
I mean, it's like watching half an inning of a baseball game and claiming to know what happened in the World Series. And the baseball game was in spring training. I mean, we, we have these ideas about what we think would be best for us in a given situation, and we don't even bother to consult God. We just say, well, it seems like that would be much more pleasant. And yet God's not concerned about our comfort. And he's not concerned about what we think would be pleasant. He's concerned about his glory. So because they knew who God was and knew what he wanted, they were able to trust him with their apparently disastrous circumstances. But let's finish Daniel's story real quick. So here we go, starting in verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. Kings didn't hurry anywhere. When he came near to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. Notice this epithet that the king gave Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, whom you serve continually. See, when we serve God faithfully in the midst of an absolute disaster, people notice, and God gets glory from that. But also notice that, that Daniel didn't harbor any bitterness towards the king. He knew the king was frail and human like anyone else, and he had been hoodwinked by these guys. But he also knew that God had worked a great miracle, and God was being glorified. And because he knew who God was and what God wanted, he was able to trust God with his circumstances. See, and when we understand this, that God is God and we're not, we're able to trust him with our circumstances. And we no longer have to deny the trouble we're in. We can look at square in the face and say, oh, man, this is a mess. And we don't need to come up with some crazy idea to explain away our situation. And we don't need to try and change our circumstances because God's in charge. And we're in exactly the place that God wants us to be at this moment. And that doesn't mean that we may not have done something stupid and we've gotten ourselves in a ditch from some stupidity of our own. That's not to mean that God necessarily places us in, th but, but God's not surprised. God's not shocked at something that happens in our lives. So how does this work out in real life? So some of you have heard me talk about this before. Um, towards the end of med school, I had this test that I had to take. And 95 plus percent of everybody who takes this test passes it, no big deal. Except I wasn't part of the 95, I was part of the less than five. And there was no reason for that. Everything in this test was stuff that I had not only done well, but I had earned course honors in, and I did very well. Everything about it should have been an absolute slam dunk, no big deal. And yet I failed it repeatedly. And we finally, as a family, came to the point where we're like, maybe God's just telling us that there's some, something else we need to do. And so I spent an entire weekend on my face before God saying, if there's something else you want me to do, then let me know. But otherwise, you got to do this. I mean, I can't, I can't get past this. And that Monday morning, I got a call from my professor saying, I think I've got something worked out for you. And long story short, it obviously worked out because here I am. But here's the thing. I do not believe that because I spent the weekend praying that, that God caused something to happen any different than it was going to happen. What I do believe is because I spent the weekend seeking God, seeking his will, that when my professor called and said he had a solution, that I saw that as God's solution to the situation. Because I could have just as easily said, you know, I appreciate that, but as a family we've come together and we've decided that this is just a roadblock God's put in our way and we need to do something else. I could have done that and that would have made sense and nobody would have faulted me. But that was not what God's plan was. And the point of my praying for the whole weekend was not to change anything God was doing, but to get me in a position to see what God was doing. So now, when hard things happen in my kids' lives, 
they get to look back on that. And they've, they've experienced some hard things for their young age. I mean, not horrible hard, but, you know, for a kid hard. And yet they're able to look back on that circumstance and say, you know, God's taken us as a family through some hard things. And so he can get me through this. And when I'm going through tough times, I'm able to look back on that and say, God's gotten me through some horrible hard things. So he can surely get me through this. And that, you know, the, the point of prayer in this outrageous faith is not this business of trying to change God and trying to get God to do something different than he's doing. It's about getting us in a point where we're able to see what God's doing. Because by entering into prayer with God, we're aligning our will with God's will. We're aligning our mind with God's mind so that when God moves, we can see it and recognize it as God as opposed to, well, this is what I think God's gonna do. This is what I hope God's gonna do. But God's gonna do what God's gonna do. Because at the end of the day, we really would not wanna worship a God that only does what we ask him to do. Because we really ask him for some stupid stuff sometimes. I know some of you know what I'm talking about. I know John knows what I'm talking about. But the reality is when we trust God for his best in our lives, for his will in our lives, then that's what's going to happen. And we can rest in that. If we know who God is and we're able to trust him and relax in his will. That's it for today's teaching. Hey, here's an idea. Share today's message with a friend or family member. If you're listening from outside our fellowship, We'd love to meet you. Visit graceid.org and hit the contact form to get in touch. We'd also love for you to join us. You can even check us out on Facebook Live by searching Facebook for Grace Church Rupert ID. Learn more and plug in at graceid.org. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Grace Community Church.